going to see the logo pop up right there. So I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1 together. As we start a new series this morning, it's going to walk us right up to Easter. So if this is the first time you're here, good news, you're right here at the very beginning of this. Uh, but if you happen to miss, it's okay. You can find all of our uh, messages archived on iTunes uh, or even uh, SoundCloud for those that use Android. But this, this is going to be a series that you see, it's follow me. And we want to ask a question for the next seven weeks. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? You see, there, there's a lot of misconception about it. Because we live in a day and age in which there is an app for everything. We live in a society that wants answers at the tip of our fingers, and we want it in less than a tenth of a second. Have you ever noticed if you type something into Google and you hit uh, enter, you want it like now? We are a society that doesn't like to wait at restaurants. We don't like being behind a Sunday driver when it's Monday. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of our children have lost their uh, imaginations because the moment they get bored, here's an electronic for them to play. Uh, Now, this is not going to be a sermon about the quote-unquote good old days. Okay? It's not what this is about. This is about how the mentality of I want it and I want it now is really affecting our, not only our culture, but specifically the church. This mentality of there's an app for that, and I can do it you know, however, whenever, if I really want to, has stunted the growth of a lot of believers, and it stunted the growth of churches. I want to go ahead and give you a spoiler alert There is not an app or a quick fix for discipleship. Why? Because the one big thing this morning is this, that being a disciple is a lifelong process. If you get nothing else out of this morning, I want you to understand that. That being a disciple, growing up as a disciple, is a lifelong process process that begins from the moment you are saved and ultimately ends in the presence of God. Now, how do we see this? How does it all work? Well, let's study it together. Philippians chapter 1, and if you found it, and if you would and can, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's word together here? Philippians chapter 1, start in verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops, that's pastors, and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you, and 
the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may, pro- may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your word, and we want to thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Because every time we open a Bible, whether it's a paper copy or an electronic copy, we are reading the mind, the heart, and the will of God. And so, Father, let us come humbly into your presence, asking that your spirit would be our teacher, and that, God, we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Again, the one big thing is that being a disciple is a lifelong process. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. Now, we want to see two things that God does, two specific works that God does in our text. The first one is this, that God saves us. I want you to notice there in verse 6, notice how it begins. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. Now, Paul's confidence is not in the Philippian believers. Rather, Paul's confidence is in God. Paul says, he, a reference to God, specifically the Holy Spirit, he has begun a good work in you. See, God's desire is saving of sinners. Who's a sinner? Well, Scripture says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Salvation is the plan or the purpose of God the Father. It is accomplished by God the Son. That's Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected. And it is confirmed by God the Holy Spirit in us. That from the moment we are saved, literally, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And it begins this process of transformation. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more here. But it's important that you and I begin with a foundational understanding that we can take absolutely no credit for our salvation. It is the plan and the work of God to the glory of God and for our good. The fact of the matter, if we were to go into the book of Romans and we would read in Romans chapter 3, this is what we would find, that if God left us to ourselves... We wouldn't love him, and we would never pursue him. We would want to live life how we want, when we want, because of we want to. Our lives would not be about God. It would be all about us. And we see this on a very regular basis, that it's not that the lost don't want to go to heaven. It's they would rather be in charge of their own life. They want to call their own shots. And and this is the the reality for us. No man can serve two masters is what Jesus said. Jesus is either the Lord of your life or he's not. You you can't have one foot in, one foot out. Okay, we're either fully surrendered to the grace of God for the glory of God and being saved or we aren't. 
Okay, and so understanding this, if you are here this morning and you are truly saved, we ought to be praising God for that every single day. Because God did what we couldn't do. God knew that we were going to sin. But because of his love and grace, he pursued us. And he drew us that we would see our need for him. And maybe you're wondering, well, what does it mean to be saved? At, the, at a very bare minimum basic, it means this. You need to be honest that you have sinned by rejecting the grace of God. You have to be honest that you are the Lord of your life. You're calling shots. You're doing things your way. As we understand that we are all sinners... The Holy Spirit draws us and points us to the beauty and the grace of the cross. Now the cross to, to the world is foolishness. But when we see and understand that there's nothing I can do to save myself. I cannot preach enough sermons. I can't attend enough church services. I can't do anything worthy of being saved and going to heaven when I understand that, then I see the true love and grace of God that died in my place so that I could be saved. And this is where we have to begin. See, the process of discipleship doesn't end when you are saved. That is the beginning of being a disciple of Jesus. One thing that the American church has to do, we have to have a paradigm shift. And this is the shift that has to happen. So often we focus on get them to church, give them the gospel, let God save them, let's baptize them, and then we go to the next person, and the next person, and the next person. Okay? We, we as a church, we have to repent of that because it is sinful to do that. See, the goal of life is not to become saved. The goal of life is to... Be a disciple of Jesus and walk in the life that he gives us. And to be a disciple who makes disciples. And so we want to make sure that we don't teach that salvation is the end of your walk. And so if you've been saved and baptized, well, now you can just sit there patiently and wait to go to heaven. No, 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 no. See, the kingdom of God started when Jesus walked this earth. God doesn't want us to get our salvation and just wait to experience his presence. No, John 10 says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. God wants us to be And so what we need to get is that salvation is the beginning of our So he says, being confident in this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the word begun is in the past. It's a past tense word. It's something that God did. There was a moment for every child of God here. There was a moment where you surrendered to the grace of God and you were saved. Fully, completely. All your sins were forgiven. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. You are secured until the day of redemption. But there's more. Because he says he will 
perform it. Now that is in the present tense. It is what God is presently doing in the hearts and lives of every child of God who's here. All right, this is the second work that God does. The, the phrase is he sanctifies us. You're going to see it on the screen. It's going to say that he grows us spiritually. All right, the word sanctify means to set apart. There in Romans 8, 29, it talks about being transformed or being conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, this is the lifelong process of being a disciple. A simple definition of a disciple is a learner who is seeking to imitate their teacher. So you and I, we don't have to like reinvent the wheel of being a disciple. We learn from Jesus and then we go and do what Jesus did. I mean, it's really that simple. Okay, and this is a lifelong process of God growing us and making us spiritually mature in him. And just like it was God who saves us, it is God who does this work in us. Again, notice verse 6. He which began a good work will perform it. So the one that started the good work is the one that's going to perform the good work and finish the good work. So it's all about what God does in us as his disciple. And so I want you to know this, that discipleship is not a class you attend. Discipleship is not a one-hour Bible study that we go to. Now, those are part of the discipling process, but a disciple is not somebody who sits in a Bible study. A disciple is someone who has been saved by God, who is in love with God, who is obedient to God for the rest of their life. That's what it means to grow spiritually. We often think that discipleship is reserved for the quote-unquote super spiritual, but it's not. That's Christianity 101. All right, we, we started something this year encouraging people to be a part of three distinct times of study. We said, first, Sunday morning corporate worship. Congratulations, you got step one. All right, step two is what we call uh, community Bible studies, Sunday school, all right, or small group Bible studies. We offer one Wednesday morning. Uh, right now it's meeting at Bojangles at 830. Uh, the first week in April, we're going to go back to sugar and slice. Yes, praise Jesus. Okay, uh, so we want to encourage you. In fact, the matter, I would say this. If you're serious about growing in your walk with God, get into a Bible study class. If you're not sure which one's right for you, please let me know. We've got them all over the building Sunday mornings and some other days of the week. We'll help you find the right one. And then the third one is really the, the discipleship piece. It's what we call a core group. It's three to five people of the same sex, so men with men, women with women, for the purpose of reading Scripture together, of memorizing Scripture together, of holding each other accountable. That's what it means to be a disciple. Okay, we, we have to reject the idea that I can consider myself a disciple if all I do is show up to one building once or twice a week. Because discipleship isn't a class we attend, it's a lifestyle that we live. And as we do that, Paul then begins in our text to lay out the good works that God does 
in us. And so let's look at them here. The works that God grows in us. Number one, you'll see it there in verse 9. It's the word love. He says, and, and this I pray that your love may abound. How many of you remember being teenagers and having your first crush? You remember that puppy love? Remember how great that person was and, oh, they're so special. And, and it was, who was going to say, I love you first? And the guy's like, I don't think so. And, and you, you love them for a while and then you realize, man, they're kind of a jerk. And, and so, like, Monday, oh, I'm in love. Wednesday, I can't stand you. Thursday, you found some other guy or girl. Oh, I'm so in love. Now, why do we do that? Because we have no concept of what love is. See, society's concept of love is this. It's an emotion. It's a relationship that is based purely off of you doing what I want you to do. So the world says, I will love you as long as you're nice to me, as long as you're convenient for me. Love is an emotion, but it is tied to an action. And here's the thing. That action does not depend on what the other person does, but rather what you have promised to do for them. Can I show it to you? Two primary texts. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the first principle of true love is this, loving the unlovable. God didn't love us because we could give something to him or that we could benefit him in some way. He loved us when there was absolutely nothing lovable about us. You know, so often we, we love those who love us back, to those who can do something for us. And Jesus says, what do you really gain if you only love the people who love you or you love those who can benefit you? Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Jesus calls us to love those that want to spend their life silencing us. This is what love is. It, love says, I'm going to love you even though sometimes you act unlovely. And the reason I'm going to love you it's because God first loved me. The second text would be Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us. So the second principle of a godly love is this. Love is sacrificial. Genuine love says, I'm going to take everything God has given me and I'm going to use it to benefit you. True love never says, what's in it for me? But rather asks, what can I give for you? How in the world can we ever get to this love? Apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, you won't. Now, you, you may be doubting me on this, but I, I can show you over and over. We're going to move on, but I, I assure you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will never get to this unconditional, unselfish love. 
Jesus enables us to do it. We learn because we observed it in him. My number one love should be Jesus Christ. See, I've got an awesome wife. I have good kids. I have a great church family. And I love Jesus more than all of you. I don't want you to take that offensively. I would do anything I possibly can. But I don't want to put my wife up on a pedestal because there's only one way for her to go. That's why Jesus said that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What I'm getting at is is this. You cannot love other people the way you are supposed to if you do not passionately love Jesus. My love for Jesus informs how I love my wife and my children and my church. And so if you're finding yourself struggling in relationships, ask yourself one simple question. How is my relationship with God? Because if my relationship with God isn't right, my relationship with my wife, my children, my church won't be right. These are the two greatest commandments. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Are you passionately pursuing Jesus? Is he the love of your life? That's the first work. The second one, moving on, still in verse 9, it's the word knowledge. That your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge. Now, when we hear the word knowledge, we think smarts. However, that's not what the biblical term means. The biblical term knowledge speaks of experience. How does God help me to love him more? Simple. I get to experience him more in my life. See, we need more than a head knowledge of who Jesus is. One of my greatest concerns for the job I get to do is that there are people everywhere I preach that have a head knowledge of who Jesus is. They know who he is, they know what he did, but they've never experienced it for themselves. They can quote chapters and verses of Scripture. They have a solid theology, but they're lacking a relationship. We know it's going to happen. Go read Matthew 7, 21 to 23. It'll prove it. Let me, let me demonstrate it really quick. In my head, I know that this stool will hold me. Now, I I know in my head that this stool is going to hold me for two primary reasons. Number one, I have sat on stools like this before, and they held me. And I know that this stool will hold me now because it held me at 8.30 this morning when when we were doing the first service. So in my head, this stool, as long as nobody played with it, is going to hold me. That knowledge without knowing what type of wood that is. I know this 
I don't know who I don't know what the assembly worker put it together. I don't know what was going on in their life. But I have a head knowledge this was gonna hold me. doesn't mean anything. I don't have faith in this to hold me until I do this. See, now I know this stool's going to hold me. Can I tell you something? Some of you have a knowledge of I know Jesus loves me. I know he died for me. But you've never experienced it. You, you've, you've never come over and rested every bit of you in Jesus. You're lost. You've put all your faith in Jesus. All your all your trust. You have a head knife. So for some of you, Jesus is saying, you experience me. You know This is what it means to have knowledge. The important thing is this. The more I experience God, the stronger my faith grows in God. I sat on this stool twice and it's held me. So I had no doubt I can come right back here. Right back on the stool. I didn't even pick up my second foot. It's good. It's gonna hold me. It's done it in the past, it's gonna do it right now. And this is what you and I need to understand. I, I made this comment, uh, I guess, three weeks ago or so, maybe a little more, uh, to a group I meet with on Mondays. I said, guys, I don't know why, but the more I pray, the more I read, God just keeps directing me to, to passages in Scripture that there's a whole lot of suffering going on. And, and I don't know why, I just kind of feel like God's going, hey, this is coming. The, the church is going to go through a, a season or a time of suffering, and so we need to get ready for it. What I didn't know was that six days later, it would all break loose. Six, I mean, six days later, we, we had a member in the hospital because she had a stroke. We, we had a member get rushed to the hospital because he was struggling to breathe. Everything in the emergency room looked good. All right, pulse was good, blood pressure was good. Everything's like, okay, he's going to be here three days, going to go to a nursing home, 100 days, life is good. All right, that was on Tuesday. We were doing a memorial service here on Sunday for him. We preached six weeks on unity of the church and how that glorifies God and is a witness to the world. And Satan has not stopped trying to attack the unity so that God would be glorified. We didn't know that another person who attends here on a regular basis would go to the doctor thinking she's got a gallbladder problem and come out with ovarian cancer. 
We didn't know that another member would go to the dentist, go on an international trip, come back and be in ICU inside of two days. We didn't know that a member was going to fall down bump his head, fracture his skull, and the doctors go, it doesn't look good. What I'm saying is this, church, life is unpredictable. We don't always know what's going to happen. And when you cannot see the hand of God, we can trust the character of God. How can I face uncertain days because He lives and because He has proven Himself time and time again? I'm going to sit on the floor. Why? Because it's going to hold me. How do I know that God is going to get us through the most difficult season of our lives when our life is falling apart? How do I know it? Because He has done it time and time and again. Church, God has not brought you this far to abandon you now. Sit and rest and trust in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to acknowledge it means what Satan means to break me and defeat me. God means to make me dependent on Him. We're going to have church in here today. The process of discipleship is expecting God more and more in your life. In church, you can't one day a week. Just open your Bible on Sunday or just go to a worship service or something. To experience God in your life. If you want to know who God is, you got to walk with Him every day. Because there are going to be times in your life where you're going to throw up your hands and go, God, I don't know what you're doing. walked through it last year. Look there at the end of verse 9 into 10. It says, In all judgment that you may approve things that are excellent. See, the more I know God, the better my ability to judge the facts of a situation in a way that glorifies God. Yo, there are so many false teachers out there, and they are leading genuine people astray. Why? Because they're not exercising in discernment. Why? Because they're not walking in the world every single day. Guys, the greatest way that you can make sure you do not fall victim to a false teacher is to read the teacher's word. You know this, you'll spot a false teacher. Learn to discern between what is good and what is God. Because there's a lot of good things we can do. I don't want good. I want God. The next word that you may be sincere. This refers to our faith being tested. See what would happen in Paul's day 
is a dishonest pottery dealer would have crack in the pottery. And, well, his job was to make money. So what would he do? He'd take some wax and he'd go and he'd cover that crack up. And he'd make sure that, that it looked good. And here's the thing. They were so good that you couldn't see a crack in the pot until you held that up to the sunlight. And as you held that crack, that pottery up to the sunlight, you started turning it be able to see, wait a minute, there's a crack right there. You put wax on it. Difficult times come. He is holding our life to the light of his truth to reveal if there's cracks in our pain. He's trying to reveal are you trusting me? See, there are a lot of people who are sincere in their faith. The problem isn't that they don't have faith. The problem is that their faith is in the wrong place. They are sincerely faithful to their God. shows us if there's deficiencies in our faith. Not because he's trying to go, yeah, I thought you were some Christian. Not because he's trying to teach you over there, but because in his love, he's trying to draw you into a deeper dependence on him. Simply put, if you want to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, you better be ready to suffer. You better be ready for stuff to break loose so it's going to happen. And it's not just going to happen to us. It's going to break again and again but that will lead to this. The next word is blameless. Now, blameless does not mean sinless. You and I will not be sinless this side of eternity. Anybody tells you differently, they're lying. Blameless isn't sinless. Rather, it is a passion and pursuit for purity. God will allow difficult times in our lives to convict us of sin in our lives. Church, we cannot be full of God if we are still full of ourselves. And so God has to get us empty of us so that we can be full, and that is under complete control of Him. Which means this. God will not tolerate our sin. He may give us grace, but there will always be consequences. You want to know how much God hates sin? He sent his only begotten sinless son and crucified him in the flesh. That's how much God hates sin. My question is how much do we hate it? can't play with a tiger without getting bit. Some of you got a pet sin tiger walking around by a leaf. Hey, hey, check out my kitty. What you don't realize is that kitty's sizing you up. 
and it will take you down. And God loves you too much to allow you to keep playing and petting sin. So he's going to reveal it. Then the final thing he says is is filled with the fruits of righteousness. This is really a, a summary statement of what he has previously been talking about. And it is this, that healthy things grow. Did you know that approximately 73% of Americans say that they are Christian? Maybe some of you in here say you're Christian. But here's the question, does your life reflect it? Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. How many of you ever heard the saying, you are what you eat? If you've ever seen my handwriting, you know I eat a lot of chicken. Chicken scratch. Well, you are who you hang out with. That other phrase, birds of a feather flock together. If you belong to Jesus, we ought to look like Jesus. We ought to act like Jesus. For me to say, well, I'm a Christian, and then to completely deny him and disobey him is to reveal that what I say is true. So if you're a child of God here this morning, I'm just going to ask you a simple question. What evidence is there in your life that others can look at and go, you know what, I believe to the best of my ability that is a person who is genuinely saved and this is not. Don't ask yourself that question. Maybe we lie to ourselves all the time. What evidence is there somebody else can see? So here's the, here's the big question. What do we do with this today? I want to give you three things just really quickly. First, recognize spiritual growth in others. You know, all through these verses, we, we see Paul encouraging the Philippian believers. He's going, I know you're saved. I know you're God's because of this and this and, and this. Can I tell you something, church? We spend all week out in the world getting beat up, right? We ought to be looking to encourage one another. If you see somebody growing in their faith or taking strides in their faith, you know what? Go up to them and point it out to them. Encourage them. Go, you know what? I I see what God's doing in you. Man, that's awesome. How can I pray for you? How can I help you? You cannot say that you love God, but then turn around and don't love God's people. You, you, you can't sing, oh, how I love Jesus on Sunday, and then, oh, I hate the church the rest of the time. The church is pottery. Of course we got cracks. That's what makes us lovable. That's evidence of God's grace. Encourage one another. See what God's doing. You see somebody struggling? Put your arm around. How can I pray for you? How can I help you? You will change your life to get your eyes off of you and get them on God who will direct you to other people. Number two, trust God to grow you. 
Alright, so here's a question. We've got a fun response at 8 How many of you, in the few years that you have lived, how many of you, your life is going exactly according to the plan you had for your life? About the same reaction. Okay. I had a plan, and then I got out of bed. I mean, my, one of my favorite things to say is if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Oh, man, God's got a sense of humor, okay? But, but here's the thing. Our plans are for our comfort, our convenience, and to make us happy here and now. We want the path of least resistance, and God is not interested in that at all. God's plan is to draw you to Him. God's plan is to point you to His sufficiency. God's plan is for your good now and for you. God wants you to experience Him and enjoy life. Man, I, I can't stand joining those Christians. Like, they drive me nuts. I mean, I'm family talk really quickly, okay? Some of you could depress Richard Chang. Alright? The older y'all are laughing, the younger like this. Don't worry about it. Here's, here's my thing. Guys, we have more reason to be joyful than anybody else. What can the world do that will change how God feels about me? Nothing. What can the world do to me that would keep me out of the presence of God now and for all of eternity? Nothing. We've got all the reason in the world to be joyful. And praise God. Yeah, you know what? Life isn't the way you expected it to be. I got it. Man, I, we could share stories for hours. But it's exactly the way God knew it was going to play out. And God's plan is for his glory and your good. We've got to trust in his methods. That even if we don't see what he's doing, we know him. And the final thing is this, know that it is a lifelong process. In case I haven't said it enough, there's not an app for discipleship. There's not a quick, easy fix. It is a long, often difficult process that is lifelong. But enjoy the journey. Because God is good. And in suffering, you will experience God and you will learn more about Him than you ever could on just sunny days. Why, why do we want to get out on our mowers when the sun comes out? Because for the last 357 days, it's done nothing but rain or snow. You can't enjoy a sunny day until you've gone through a dark, stormy day. But God is the same in both of those days. And, and, and when we go, God, I don't understand it. But I trust you. We experience it. And we grow. And that's what God wants. Have you given him your heart and your life? Are you 
trusting in all of Jesus. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. Father, in, in the quietness of this moment, as, as we, in, in this service, Lord, the best thing, the only thing that we can do or want to do is just simply praise you. Because you and you alone are worthy to be praised, Father. Oh, Lord, your, your amazing, marvelous, matchless grace. Lord, I pray over every person that is in this place. Lord, I, I don't know where they are with you. It's my prayer that every person here is trusting in you, but Father, you know for sure. And the good news about that is you brought them here so that they could hear the gospel, that today might be that day of salvation. And so, Lord, I just pray over every life here, if they've never surrendered to your grace, God, I pray that now they would. Even now, as we're praying, that they would just be confessing that, yes, God, I have sinned. God, I just want to trust you. Father, for that believer that carry, came in here carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, Lord, life has beaten them up. They don't feel like they can take another step. Father, help us to just fall into the arms of our loving Lord. To know that we don't have to be sufficient because you are. You told us to bring all our cares to you because you care for us. So, Father, let us respond to your word and to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. There's one final song that we want to sing. If you need to come and pray, the altar's open, front pew's open. You can come. I'll pray with you. However we can help, let's respond in faith to him.